0: If you take your Bibles this morning and make your way to Mark chapter 3, as we continue our journey through Mark, um, I've just titled this one, The Servant Under Attack. Why do we call him the Servant? Because Mark writes this narrative, historical account of Jesus, but he's writing to the Roman believers, most of them Gentiles. There's even Latin words um, that are transliterated in this gospel. So he's writing to the, to the mostly Gentile Roman uh, believers. Um, this is John Mark, the same guy that we see in Acts, uh, possibly the son of Peter, if not Peter's son, very close to him, because all of his information comes from Peter. Um, and he presents Jesus as the great servant king. Um, and, he, and, and it is a very fast book. His favorite word is immediately, it's quick. <laughs> I mean, he's going from one thing to the next. He actually skips an entire year after Jesus' time in the wilderness. Uh, he gets over the 40 days in the wilderness, and then he preaches his first sermon that Mark records. But what, what we have to realize is that John records an entire year of ministry that happened mostly in, in um, Judea, near Jerusalem, southern Palestine. And that's the most time Jesus spends there. The rest of his ministry is going to take place in the northern part of Palestine in the province of Galilee um, where he grew up. And he's going to be on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is really a giant lake in a town called Capernaum where Peter lives. Peter is a fisherman. He has a a pretty large home um, in Capernaum. They they believe they found that home and the archaeological remains show that it's a large home with a pretty big courtyard in between the two living areas, and a lot of what we're reading about, including what we're going to read about today, takes place in Peter's home um, uh, until there's no more room. So most of Jesus' ministry has been happening up there in the Capernaum, northern Galilee area. Um, he starts off and the, uh, and the and the people who the men who head up the synagogues in the area, which are like satellite temples if you will, the temples in Jerusalem, but every town had their satellite uh, area where they would, Jews would come and worship the Lord on the Sabbath. Um, they were inviting Jesus to speak initially until things started happening and with some of those things that happened is he started to make some strange statements about who he was that didn't sit well. He started to heal people and then what really, kind of put the nail in the coffin between Jesus and those religious leaders is when he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. And they thought, they reasoned in their hearts saying, only God can forgive sins. And they were right, weren't they? And Jesus says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he turned to the paralytic, he said, rise, take up your bed, and walk as proof that that I have the authority to forgive your sins. And the paralytic did just that. And it's interesting. It goes on to, uh, on that day, he makes an enemy of the religious leaders and the religious system. Just a few days later or months later, Jesus is in the synagogue again. And there's a man with a withered hand. That's the beginning of chapter 3. And he knows they're, they're trying to find fault with him and they're just waiting for him to heal that man on the Sabbath because that's against their rules. Interesting, not against God's rules, against man's rules. See, the religious system had been bulked up, and a whole bunch more rules were instituted that had nothing to do with the Ten Commandments or with God's law, but were extra rules. And Jesus wasn't going to play ball with that. And he heals the man on the Sabbath, and the Bible has a strange... Historical statement there at the end in verse six. He said, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. Now the Herodians, you have to know, are the political arm of the Jewish um, machine where the Pharisees were the religious arm and those two did not like each other. But as has been said in The Art of War, that great book by uh, uh, the Chinese warlord, Said this, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they have some strange bedfellows here and they get together. We're going to, we've got to take this man out. The next thing we see is that Jesus' popularity is not diminishing, but it's what? It's, it's exploding. So much so that he's afraid. He's literally going to be crushed to death by the crowds. And he has to get in a boat so that they can't get to him. That's how hard the press is, thousands of people. And then he goes up the mountain to get away from them, and he calls and appoints the 12 apostles, disciples, finally. These are the 12 that he's going to keep close by. And we ended last week that they go into a house, and we know that house to be the home of Peter. All right, then some days later, or even weeks later, verse 20 is where we'll begin today. Then the, uh, the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Okay, so they're in Peter's home. And there's so many people in there that they can't even eat. All right. So it's, it, I guess you call this a forced fast, right? They can't even eat. And it, it, it actually is problematic. All right. So there are so many people. Peter's large home and large courtyard is, is surrounded. And there's a crowd outside. Um, and they're all there uh, to see Jesus because they, they have people that need to be healed. Uh, or or demon-possessed folks that need to be uh, freed and cleansed. So that picks us up today. I call this the servant under attack. We know he's under attack by the religious leaders. Uh, How many have ever been misunderstood in your life? You ever been misunderstood? Right. You're not doing anything wrong, but people aren't getting what you're doing, and 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 you get attacked for that. The Bible tells us all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution or opposition not might will right so don't be surprised when you find yourself misunderstood jesus was misunderstood so we have we have a grand companion in the misunderstood club amen and his name is jesus so we're going to look at that today he's under attack and the first thing i want you to see in your outline this morning he's under attack by his friends and maybe right in, in amongst friends maybe maybe above it put family I actually think (coughs) what we're going to see here initially is a reference to the end of the chapter, talking about Jesus' actual family, his mother and his brothers who have come for him. So, number one, his friends attacked his sanity. They attacked his sanity. And we see this... um, in verse number 20. So this multitude, 21. This multitude comes together. He can't even eat. News of this has spread. Now they're in Capernaum, northern shore of Galilee. In the southwestern, uh, a number of miles from the the Galilee is a little tiny town called Nazareth. And of course that's where Jesus grew up. And word has gotten around about Jesus. They're coming even from Judea, 65 miles away. People are literally camping out to find out about this guy. Jesus' popularity has exploded even though he's tried to keep it down. We're almost to the year and a half point, halfway through his public ministry. His family has heard about what's going on. They're hearing about these massive crowds, but what they're also hearing about is that he has claimed to be the son of God. They also heard about he is, he is claiming to forgive people of their sins. And, they, and they're worried that, listen, that he has lost his mind. This is his own mom and his own brothers. They're concerned that he is out of his mind. And that's, that's, a, that's the next point under is their reasons. He, they, they literally said, look at verse 21 but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They were worried. His family was worried about his sanity. That's why Jesus would say when he did visit Nazareth, a prophet has honor everywhere except in his hometown. And the Bible makes an interesting commentary on that. It said he couldn't do many miracles there for their lack of faith. They knew him too well. What's the old saying? Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Contempt. They thought he was crazy. That was their reason. And their remedy was to take him by force. Is literally what, what that says. When his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. That word lay hold of is a Greek word that means to arrest. It, it, it It's what happened. It's the same word that's used of John the Baptist when Herod came for him and, and incarcerated him. It's the words that, that's used for Jesus. Arrest. It means literally to take by force. So here's Jesus' mom and his brothers. And they're like, the boy's lost his mind. Uh, you know, Jesus... Yeshua has gone crazy. He's up there claiming to be the Son of God. We got to do something about this. We need to go up there and grab him and get him some mental help. Right? So he's under attack by his own family and friends. His own people have come to literally take him by force and, and, and to try to help him. But not only his friends, but his foes attacked his spirituality. His friends and family attacked his sanity. But his foes attacked his spirituality. And, and his foes here would be the religious system, the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees and those on the Sanhedrin, the elders of the Jewish religious machine. we pick picked this up in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, now notice that. They're in Jerusalem, 70 miles walking away from where Jesus is, and notice says they came down from Jerusalem, now this is, I always want to throw this out at you, because if you know anything about geography, you can look at it they said, these people that wrote scripture were ignorant, but they weren't, it's a colloquialism, uh, Jerusalem is south, they're in, the, they're in the tip of the border of Palestine and Galilee, way up north, and yet the Bible says they came down uh, from Jerusalem, The reason it's called down, you always go up to Jerusalem no matter what direction you're in because Jerusalem is built on the highest point in all of Palestine. It's a vertical thing. It's not a direction thing. Does that make sense? So you always go down from Jerusalem and you always go up to Jerusalem no matter what direction you come from. Does that make sense today? So they're not mistaken. These people were very smart. They understood geography, but this is a colloquialism. It is also a way to honor Jerusalem as the high point. So the Bible says that these scribes, they they came there from Jerusalem, and here's here's what they were saying. Here's here's the attack of, of these scribes. They attack his spirituality. They said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. So they're literally saying about Jesus that the only way he is uh, doing all of these miracles is that he's doing it by the power of Satan himself. Now, you have to appreciate their problem. They got a dilemma. Y'all realize that, right? These religious leaders got a problem. What's their problem with Jesus and what he's, the miracles that he's doing? Huh? They can't deny him. There are too many people that were lame, paralyzed, had had uh, blind uh, people that were demon possessed that could now and have by the way and lepers that were cleansed because what's the first thing a leper's got to do when he's cleansed? We already saw it. You got to go where to Jerusalem and show yourself to the priest. The priest literally listen to this. The religious system, the machine, literally had to the responsibility of confirming the miracles of Jesus through these people. It was their job. And they would look at these lepers that were cleansed and say, yeah, you're clean. How did it happen? Yeshua, the prophet from Galilee, healed me. They could not, that's their problem. His his opposition, they couldn't deny that he was doing these miracles. And actually, it was their job to confirm them so listen, think about it. So, so in order for them to deny the miracles, they would have to deny their confirmation of the healing of these people, and they would be talking out of both sides of their mouths. Do you see their problem? They're, 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 they're impaled on the horns of a dilemma. The very man they want, they have to discredit. They have also approved his actions. And was stuck. They were stuck. Now, there's a way to get off the unimpaled from the horns. There's actually three ways. But one way is called to go between the horns. And that is to offer a third viable solution that has not been offered. So Jesus absolutely did these miracles. And these miracles were confirmed by the religious leaders, the two horns that they're impaled on. So we go between those horns and we offer a third alternative. And here it is. Yes. This man is doing these miracles, but the question is, how is he doing them? And here's their alternative: He's doing them by the power of Satan himself. Isn't that interesting? And it's a little—it's clever. Um, William Barclay, the the commentator, writes this: It is by no means uncommon for people to resort to slander. When honest opposition is helpless, yeah. isn't that true? How many of you know that's true in life, right? Yeah. They resort to slander when there's really no good, honest opposition. And by the way, this is not the only time that Jesus would be insulted like this. Just jot these down. John 10:20 says this: He has a demon and he's mad. Why do you listen to him? John 8:48: Did we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Um, and then John 7.20 just basically says you have a demon. So this was, this, was their, this was their plan, and they were sticking to it. He, you're doing all these miracles by the power of Satan, and you are demon-possessed. You are dispossessing people of demons by the demon that's in you. Right? And that's their story, and they're sticking to it. And, and, and this is going to set a precedent and a pattern for these people of getting the story and sticking to it because they had a problem later on when they put that man's torn, broken body in a tomb and three days later it was empty. Remember the story they paid the guards to say? His disciples came and overpowered us and stole the body. That's their story and they were sticking to it. So this was not new for them. Um, Notice this though, it says that in that verse it says he has Beelzebub what is Beelzebub? Well, he kind of tells us. By the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So Beelzebub, whoever he is, is the ruler of these demons. Um, it, it's actually a variant in the, in the Latin Vulgate, but literally this word is transliterate. In other words, it's a, it comes from the Hebrew, and to transliterate it means we just turn it into English, but we don't, we don't translate it. And it comes from two words... And one you'll be familiar with, um, which, is, which we call it Baal, but literally it's Baal. You remember the, the, the demon god of Baal or Baal uh, in the Old Testament? It comes from there. And then Zabub, which is the Philistine. You put those two words together, Baal, Zabub, is the Philistine lord of the flies. The um, god of the flies. Uh, or fly Baal or fly god whose office was to protect his worshippers from the torment of the gnats and flies with which that region was infected and infested. So in Jesus' day, this so-called false god is derisively called Beelzebub, uh, which is also translated Lord of, Lord of Dung because you think about flies and, and manure. Um, and in Jesus replied to the accusation of those Jews uh, that he cast out, demons by Beelzebub, he answers in Matthew, jot that down, Matthew 12, 26, substituting the name Satan, which clearly identifies the Jewish references to Beelzebub as another name for Satan. So in other words, he's saying you're casting out Satan by Satan, and this this is the attack that comes, the accusation, the attack that comes from his detractors, and this is not new. David Thompson, the commentator, said this, Henry Caswell was a Protestant theologian back in the days of Joseph Smith, the immoral heretic and founder of Mormonism. Mr. Caswell was a professor of theology in the 1800s when Joseph Smith was making his fraudulent claims. One of the claims that Smith made was that he was some biblical scholar and linguist who was able to translate languages so on listen to this so on april 19th 1842 mr caswell took smith an old copy of a greek text of the psalms and asked him to identify it and anyone who knew greek would easily be able to do do this and smith was claiming that he knew greek so not knowing that mr caswell was a very skilled in biblical languages smith said it was some old egyptian writing Joseph Smith was shown to be what he was, a religious con artist liar. Now listen to what Thompson goes on to say. There will literally be thousands of people who will end up in hell forever because they follow the lies and deceptions of Joseph Smith. There will be thousands of people who will end up in hell because they follow the lies and deception of Muhammad. Muhammad. There will be thousands of people who end up in hell because they will follow the lies and deceptions of Charles Russell, who was the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And there will be thousands of people who will end up in hell because they follow the lies and deceptions of some pope from Rome. These will be people who would rather believe in themselves and their religious system rather than Jesus Christ. False religious systems try to get people to follow them by demanding and discrediting the person and work of Jesus Christ, and those who follow them will end up in an eternal hell. They cannot deny Jesus Christ was actually here on earth, but what they do is twist the truth about him in an attempt to get people to believe what isn't accurate. End quote. Nothing new. Nothing new. I read that long quote just to show you where we've experienced and are experiencing the same thing. And brothers and sisters, please hear me. What you believe about Jesus matters. Amen? What, What we believe about King Jesus eternally matters. And the lies started really before Jesus was ever born. And they continue here. So look at Jesus' answer. So A is the attack. Look at B is the answer. And we find this in verse 23 through 27. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables. Now the them there is the scribes. So he gets all these people. Literally, it means that word called to himself is the same word that we use in a legal case. He's like getting the summons to a court. He summoned them. Okay, guys, gather around. Now remember... There's so many people pressing in on them that he can't even eat. So we're in this massive crowd. These guys have made the accusation out there in the crowd. And so what he's saying here is, hey, crowd, move aside. I want these guys front and center. So he calls the scribes front and center together in this, in this massive crowd who have just accused him of casting Satan out by Satan. And he uses three illustrations. The first one is a secular illustration. He gives him this parable. How can Satan cast out Satan? So he's asking a rhetorical question. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So he goes to a secular idea, a kingdom. So Jesus begins his answer with a counter question. Remember I told you that? Jesus, almost always his MO was to answer a question with a question. I said this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating. Uh, questions, or, or statements harden and build walls. Questions build bridges and they convict. Right? So Jesus gives him a counter question. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. His question, and, and Andy and Ben and Sam and William, you'll remember this from your logic time with me in class, no, don't say no. I'll make you get up here and, and define it, William. <laughs> I know you know this. This is called a reductio ad absurdum. And, and it's a logical term. In other words, it it it, it 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 this is an argument that exposes itself as absurd. And it's called reductio ad absurdum. And there's a way in a formal logical proof that you can prove that. So Jesus is saying your very argument reduces itself to the absurd. And he's using that here. He's using that logic right here. It's an argument that attempts to establish a claim by showing that the opposite scenario would lead to absurdity. And that's what Jesus is using here. Jot this down, Luke 11:19. Now in Luke 11:19, Jesus adds another piece of logic that's not found in the events recorded here in Mark 3 or in Matthew 12. Here's what he says there. And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. So, so Jesus is recognizing here that he was aware of so-called Jewish exorcists of the day. And uh, he's, he's just saying, oh, okay, so are you accusing your own sons of, of casting out demons, Satan by Satan as well? Or is that just me? Reductio ad absurdum. Get it? Hey, Jesus is no dummy. And he's honest and he's righteous. So he uses this secular illustration of a kingdom. Then he brings it down to a social illustration of a family. He goes from secular to social. He shifts from kingdom to a house. And look at verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, that house, what? Cannot stand. It's going to fall. It's the old saying, divide and conquer, right? So there's your, your, your social illustration. He said, "This is you can see this even in your home. A husband and wife get divided, what happens to the house? It falls. There's no standing. You're going to destroy it. And then he uses a spiritual illustration beginning in verse 26. Now check this out. 26 and 27. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. In other words, Satan Satan is it's like chewing off your own foot. No, now look at verse 27. He said, what he now he's offering the other alternative. He said, look, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. You get it? Jesus said, hey guys, you know the score. By the way, a couple of things here. Jesus is admitting that Satan is a strong man. Hmm? Satan has authority on this earth for a time. Be very careful. I, I get nervous around these people that run around talking, talking smack against Satan. Uh, he is not to be messed with in any form or fashion. Or the worst thing you can do is disrespect him or, or look at him as something other than he is. Even Jesus said, that's a strong man. He said, no one goes to a strong man and plunders his house unless you go to the strong man first and bind him. You've got to put him in chains so you can go do what you want to with his house. He's just using truth here. This is what's happened. See, Jesus is the stronger man and he has entered the house of Satan and he has bound him. Isn't that true? Today we frequently hear about people who go around binding Satan. Well, really, I submit that that is totally unnecessary and unbiblical. Jesus has already bound Satan and he's the only one who could do it and he's done it. He bound the devil even in the days of his ministry and made it possible to cast out these unclean spirits and to plunder the house of Satan and to release those that have been held captive for so long, which is humanity. And that's the explanation of what happened here. So today we don't need to go around binding the devil. Now, we can properly exercise the authority to cast out evil spirits, but it's because the devil is already bound that we have that possibility at all and there's only one who has made that possible, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And I just want to say something culturally here, too, for, for we must be thinking people, and we live in a, in a culture that has certainly fallen, and we need to stand out as lights. Jesus is also making a, a, just a real-world logical application here or comment here that everybody agreed with. Um, you, you don't go into a strong man's house unless you bind him first. I just want to say to you, Uh, Be careful of that. That principle itself, without the allegory, still stands. There's a reason the wicked people in this area don't walk into your house to rob you, and it's because you most likely have an ability to protect yourself. You all follow what I'm saying? And those that would remove that, that Second Amendment right and responsibility of every godly man and woman in this country are not on the side of light. They are on the side of darkness. Be thinking people today. And I don't think that application is off base at all. So there's a spiritual illustration. And letter C is the alarm. There's some things that we need to be careful of here. <laughs> and Jesus is not done. I bound that strong man. How I'm not casting up demons. I, I, Satan be chewing off his own foot. That's not how this is working. And now he turns. He don't notice he's not asking questions anymore. Now he's making statements. And by the way, y'all better sit up and take notice. When Jesus starts stops asking questions and starts making statements, we should be very, very aware and alert and concerned. First of all, look at verse 28. Assuredly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But, and you ought to circle that in your Bible, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to the eternal condemnation, because they said to him, he has an unclean spirit. So there's two thoughts here. That that number one is the sin that can be forgiven. Jesus says, hey, We all say stupid things. On all these blasphemies, which just means to speak against God, can be forgiven. The truth of forgiveness of all and whatever is found in both Testaments, the Old and the New. Jesus is saying we can be forgiven. You say dumb things, you have lack of understanding. We've all done that. And those things can be forgiven. We see this in Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. They are red like crimson. They will be like wool. Amen? Old Testament. Isaiah got this. But we also see in 1 John 1, seven. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses. And by the way, that's in a perfect continual tense constantly, consistently cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that good news? Our, that's the good news today is that there's sin that can be forgiven. How many of you are glad that's true today? But there's also a sin that cannot be forgiven. May, might I say it better, will not be forgiven. And that's in verse 29. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, the eternal condemning wrath of God because he said he has an unclean spirit. You've heard it, the, un, the unpardonable sin. Y'all ever heard about that? There's a lot of confusion out there about that. All right? Um, in short... The unforgivable, unpardonable sin is attributing the mighty miracle-working power of Jesus to Satan. Got to get the, stay in the context, folks. Whenever you take the text away from that which it sits in, you're left with a con. Context is king. And as we learned recently, context reveals the king. The context here is they were saying that Jesus was doing all these miracles by the power of Satan. That's the unpardonable sin. Speaking against the Son of God and the Spirit of God. Matt Chandler puts it this way, The blasphemy of the Spirit is the knowledgeable, willful, continued rebellion against the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Sam Storms adds this, It is not a careless act, but a calloused attitude. That's pretty good right there. You should write that down. It's not a careless act, but a calloused attitude. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. End quote. It's a deliberate refusal of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and attributing what Jesus did to Satan. And God will not forgive you for that. And I think it was specifically given to those men who accused him of it. There's room in there to disagree, but I don't know if that sin can even be committed today. I think that was specifically for those men who said it. Jesus was no doubt under great attack here. And the alarm here is that there's sin that can be forgiven, but boy, there's sin that can't. And let's stay way away from that sin that cannot. Amen? There's a last thing in here. It's not in your outline, but I want you to add it. It was my mistake. Number three is his family. And that goes back to the beginning. His family didn't understand. Look at verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. Why were they standing outside? There's no room. Right? He, He can't even... get get enough space to eat. This crowd is way outside the house and they're out there so they can't get in so they just send a message. They just tap the person. Hey, can you tell Yeshua, which is what they would have called him, can you tell Yeshua that his mom's out here and all his brothers? And that got past like telephone. You ever play telephone when you were a kid? Apparently here at work. Verse 32, and a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And I think, and I don't think it's an unfair extrapolation, I think this goes back to the beginning of the section where he said his own people came to get him because they thought he was nuts. They thought he lost his mind. He's telling people he's a son of God, he's forgiving people's sins. I don't know what's going on, but we've got to get him home and see if we can get him some mental help. And it's hard to think about Mary that way, right? But, but, but folks, Mary was just a human being just like you. And, and I think this is a little bit problematic. Uh, some that teach that Mary remained a virgin the rest of her life. And yet here's Mary with Jesus, what? Brothers, that's problematic. Some, some have the way that's explained in, 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 in the, the Roman church is that these were the former these were the sons of Joseph before Mary because they insist upon the perpetual virginity of Mary the text nowhere allows that or even mentions that. So here's, here's Mary out there with Jesus' brothers, and we know that he had at least four that are mentioned in the scriptures. Two of them wrote uh, epistles, James and Jude. He had a brother named Simon and a brother named after Joseph, named Joseph, which was a variant of the word Joseph. So he had at least those four, and we find out later he even had sisters. So They all came to get him. And hey, your own people are here for you. Look at verse thirty-three. But he answered them, saying, "Who is my mother or my brothers?" There's your question, right? Who is my mother and brothers? Look at thirty-four. And he looked around a circle at those who sat about him. I like that. Who? Take your context. Who's sitting right around him? Who did he just summon to him to answer them? The scribes, the scribes his enemies. The, people who, the men who had committed the unpardonable sin just now, he looks around, he looks at them, and the Bible says he looks at them in a circle. You know what that intones? He looked every one of them in the eye as he said these words. Don't miss this. Look what he said. Who is my mother and brother? He looked at, he looked at them in a circle, at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. You know what I think he's doing? I think he's pointing past them to the true disciples that were surrounding the scribes. Can you picture this scene? Not you. There's my real family. Not you people. 35, for whoever does the will of God is my mother, is my brother, and my sister, and my mother. And again, not you guys, them. And not my earthly family, that's at the back of the crowd either. Because at this point, they're trying to do a right thing, but they're doing a wrong thing. Y'all, y'all tracking with it? Can you see that today? I want you to see the scripture with the Bible glasses off and see what, what was really going on here. So I'll close with this from C.S. Lewis in his classic Mere Christianity. By the way, y'all, if you've never read that, make that put that on your summer reading list. Sam, I think you read that this year. Did you not in your in your senior year? Is it not a great book? It is. It'll really make you think. Here's let me quote from Lewis. Here's what he says in that book. I'm trying here, says Lewis, to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Listen to Lewis's words. He would either be a lunatic, which his family thought he was, on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or a man that says, well, anyway, or else he would be the devil of hell, That he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange and terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. End quote. You know what, folks? It always comes down to that, doesn't it? He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And the question is what do you believe? about King Jesus today. That's all that matters today. And if he is who he said he is, then our response must be, don't miss this, it must be the sermon that Jesus preached as his very first sermon and, and what was in the heart of every sermon Jesus preached. Are you ready for this? Real simple. Repent. What does repent mean? Turn away from your sins. You're like, I love my sin. Yeah, that's your problem. You need, to, you need to turn away from it. You need to seek God for the Holy Spirit empowerment to love what God loves and hate what He hates. God hates your sin. And the way, one of the ways that you know you are a child of God is you begin to hate your sin too. Repent. Seek God for that gift of repentance this morning. And then believe, that's the other side of the coin. That means to trust that Jesus is who he said he is, that he does have the authority on earth to forgive sins, that he is the son of man, which is another way of saying he is the son of God, the, the, the very nature of God in a human being. And then accept the call to follow him, right there in Mark, as he turns, makes you a fisher of men. You join him on his mission. That makes sense this morning? Have you done that? If not, you must do that. You must obey that gospel today, that good news. Repent, believe, and follow our King. Would you stand with me? Courtney's going to come. We're going to sing one of my favorite new songs. Sounds like an old one, but it's a new one. It's simply called Grace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Help us, Lord. Give us that gift of repentance and belief and following Jesus as our King. He is not a liar. He's not a lunatic, but he is certainly Lord. And you made him that way. And right now he is at your right hand while you put all of his enemies under his feet showing his supreme authority. And we are called to be a part of that. And a lot of those enemies are internal. And Lord, I pray that right now that you would call your saints to take the things inside of them that are rebellious against the king and to repent of them, to turn away from them, to answer the call, to nail that flesh, that unregenerated, unchanged part of us to the cross every single day and say no to sin and yes to being a saint and to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate, starting with that which is in us. Call us to that repentance and faith and the close following of our king For the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen.